I want to encourage you tonight to turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. Nehemiah, chapter 4. The title of this evening's message is Personal Growth and Spiritual Warfare. And tonight, we're going to focus on one of the ways that we see illustrated in Scripture in which Satan attacks you and me, tying somewhat into this morning's study when we saw the different thoughts that can lodge in our minds, even as believers, things that are not true and that affect us. But there are also things that the enemy does, that he puts on us, puts into our thinking, into our thoughts, to render us ineffective in our walk with him and our service of him. And so tonight I want to focus on the nature of those attacks as it's illustrated in the book of Nehemiah, and then two weeks from now, we'll come back and look at how we respond to those attacks. Next Sunday night, we're going to have at least a gallon of that Butterfinger, is it Butterfinger you said? Ice cream. So we'll be having a picnic next Sunday night. Personal growth and spiritual warfare. Nehemiah chapter 4, we read, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. The story of Nehemiah is one that was integral in my sense of God's leading to come to win Arkansas because of the great need. In this region of the country, we call the Delta, spiritually. And this story of Nehemiah is a picture of a man who was highly ranked. He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And, and in that capacity, it's not that you just took a drink of the cup to see whether or not there was poison in it. You were a trusted advisor to the king. And so he would be part of the, he would be the chief of staff in the White House in comparison. And this man receives a call from God to leave that circumstance and enter into another one. And the story is familiar. He receives this news that, it, that the walls were burned down and the people were demoralized. And he responds with a kind of brokenness where he can never see things the same way again. And he 
experiences this call from God ultimately to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. But the opposition came quickly. And it came in the form of attack from this man, Sanballat. And so in your handout, you'll see uh, the attack is defined as this, any effort to make you feel inadequate to do what God has directed you to do. That's the nature, the kind of attack that we're talking about. You're wanting to be obedient, you're wanting to do what God has said, and he's working against that. Sanballat's opposition to the efforts of rebuilding these walls reflect the kind of satanic attack that every believer experiences when he or she is seeking to grow, to become like Christ, to change, to become what we know to be true. The devil's dead set against that process. He's against your transformation. He's against you changing the way that you respond to people or reacting to people. He's against you forming the character of Christ. He first appears in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. It says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And there's a reason they were disturbed. He had been the provincial governor of Samaria, and his control had been absolute. Previously, nothing could happen without his approval. But now something had happened, and he was overruled. Nehemiah had been sent by Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah had official letters from the emperor, and his authority overruled Sanballat. Anything Sanballat decreed, Nehemiah could overrule and undo. And so now he was the governor of Judah. His authority was greater. He faced Sanballat as he took shots at him. Sanballat was critical. Sanballat issued this thing that we read in Nehemiah chapter 4, where he is attacking this thing that Nehemiah is doing. And in the face of what Nehemiah is doing, Sanballat behaved very much as Satan does with you and with me. Now I want you to see the analogy of the walls. As Nehemiah was called to rebuild the walls, you and I are called to rebuild the walls in our own lives. And those walls consist of new habits and disciplines. When, when Before you come to Christ, the way that God made you to live was from the inside out, where your spirit was in communion with God constantly. And from that center of being in communion and fellowship with God, your spirit was to affect your mind. Your spirit was to affect your will and your choices. Your spirit was to affect your emotions. And you were to, be, you were to, to live in a way that reflected this relationship with God. In the Garden of Eden, all of that changed. Sin entered the picture when mankind sin through Adam's sin, every human being that's ever been born was born with this brokenness on the inside. That brokenness begins because the human spirit without Christ is cut off from God. The human spirit without Christ does not have the capacity to sense or recognize spiritual things. The human spirit without help from God is dead in the sense that it is cut off and unable to contact, commune with or relate to God. And so we need salvation. We need that restoration of that relationship. 
And so when I trusted Christ myself in 1979, a miracle occurred. And it's true of every person here who knows Christ. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God comes in to the human spirit, merges with that human spirit, and, and we become what the Bible says, we become new creatures in Christ. Now, at that moment, you have established this relationship with God. God's done it. And at the core of your being, everything is new. Everything is different. Everything is alive. And your destiny is settled because of this new creation thing that has happened to you. Does that mean your mind is back the way it should be? Your, your body, your emotions, your decisions, does that mean you're all now in perfect alignment with the will of God and his heart? No. In fact, your spirit, which was to be your guide, that was to direct you and, and to be the source of your direction, your guidance, in the absence of that, for whatever period of time that you have been immersed in a life without God and a life where sin is dominant in you, your life is in ruins, just like the walls. And the damage is deep. And what he wants to do is rebuild your life in much the way that Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I, I alluded to this already, but I just want to read it. Some guys came from Jerusalem. They're visiting Nehemiah where he is serving in this great, important capacity as the cupbearer to the king. And he asked them, what are things like in Jerusalem? In Nehemiah 1 verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Everything changed for Nehemiah at that point. Because these guys that brought the news, they weren't troubled that way. But Nehemiah begins to pray and seek God for a period of three to four months. And his life has completely changed. He could never just be the cupbearer to the king anymore. Something has to be done. Something has to give. Something has to change. And so Nehemiah prays and seeks God and ultimately receives this calling. But here's what I want you to see. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. Yes, they rebuilt walls. But the story of Nehemiah is not about an architectural campaign. It's about rebuilding the people of God. And the people of God in Nehemiah's day were so transformed by this experience of rebuilding the walls, that scholars tell us that the constant pattern of faithfulness to God and then falling away and falling into idolatry that you read throughout the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over again, that after what happened in Nehemiah happened, 
that the people of Israel never again fell into idolatry. That doesn't mean they were perfect. We talked about Pharisees this morning. (laughs) But they never again went back to idolatry. And something transformational occurred in the rebuilding of the walls, but it was the rebuilding of the hearts of the people of God. Now, in the face of that, God is rebuilding your heart. God is rebuilding your walls of your soul. Without the walls in Jerusalem, the enemy can come and go at will and say what he wants and do what he wants, and the people are subject to the enemy. And God wants to grow you to a place to where the enemy does not have a say in your heart, in your mind, in your decisions, and your emotions. He wants to rebuild the walls of your own soul. Whether you like it or not, you are in a war. You are under attack. Your family is under attack. This church is under attack. Always. And you and I are foolish to think anything else. And so the enemy is at work. What are the kinds of things that he will do? What are the kinds of things that he will say to you as an individual as you are trying to grow, you are trying to be responsive to the Spirit of God, as you rebuild, what will this demonic opposition look like? First, he will attack your identity. He will attack your identity. In verse 2, Sanballat refers to those feeble Jews. He's looking at these people. He's really not talking to them. At this point, he's addressing his own troops, those feeble Jews. He's addressing his army. And just as Sanballat addressed his army, his troops, we have a Satan who has an army of demons. We shouldn't be surprised if sometimes you and I wake up feeling as though tanks had rolled over us. It's not just one enemy or two enemies. There is a countless myriad of demonic spirits that are at work. What Sanballat was really doing, however, was lamenting the fact that until now, he was in charge. Until now, he, he was in control. And these people didn't look very strong right now, but he's trying to pick at them. He's trying to restore and hang on to his sense of control and his sense of power. He had been unchallenged, but now he's been preempted by Nehemiah's authority. What's the lesson here? Don't let the devil remind you of your weakness when his real concern is his loss of power over you. You have a new identity. You are not part of the kingdom or the domain of darkness anymore. You do not belong to him. You are not subject to him. He is not your boss. The Spirit of God has come to dwell in you, and the Word of God declares that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. He will attack your identity. Secondly, he'll attack your growth. He'll attack your growth. In verse 2 it says, will they restore their wall? I mean, he's questioning that. You go back to the Garden of Eden. That's how Satan tempted Eve, with questions. And here it is, will they restore their wall? 
And our souls are full of rubble, unforgiveness, bitterness, bad attitudes, bad habits, painful memories, and confusion. And as we, you and I grow, we are overcoming and battling these things in our lives. We're fighting them. We recognize them. We feel them. They rumble around in our hearts and in our mind. But as we do battle with those things, Satan will exploit those very same things. Satan will hook into the circumstantial stuff that it's still lying around the construction site that's called your soul. He will play on old doubts. He will aggravate unhealed wounds in your soul. He will stir up old habits of speech and thought. I believe in response to his mocking that you and I need to say something in the face of that. Quoting scripture is best, but the idea should be the Holy Spirit is actively helping me to rebuild the ruins of my life. Yes, I know it's a mess, but God is at work in me. It may be my own fault, and I may have created new messes, but God is at work in me. The third thing he'll attack is your worship. Will they offer sacrifices, he says in verse 2. Now we know at this point in the history of Jerusalem, the temple was finished and functional. It had been rebuilt. But the walls were still a pile of stones. And up to this point, the Jews had been defenseless. They were open prey. And so when they went to worship in the temple, and when they went to the temple, they still had to walk past the rubble of the walls. Does any of this resemble your life? You come to church, you're going to worship. You're going to sing to him. You're going to praise him. And as far as everyone can see, you're just this marvelous Christian man or woman, and you're worshiping him. But on the inside, you're thinking, I blew it this week. Man, I messed up. My, my home is messed up. My kids are messed up. I, I don't see forward movement in my life. I don't see the progress that I want, that I, that I long for, and that I yearn for. And in the midst of those kinds of thoughts and feelings, the enemy says, yeah, are you going to worship? You? Someone like you, if the people here knew what you were like, you're going to worship? And if he's successful with that attack, not only will you not feel like singing, not only will you feel like praying or worshiping, you're going to feel a lot like just walking out the door and not coming back. How many people have been so discouraged by the enemy that they've been ready to quit? The answer to his mocking question is, yes, I will worship. I will worship without impediment because God has taken hold in my heart and I know my true identity. My mind has stayed on the Lord, not on my history and not on my rubble. The fourth thing he'll attack is your progress. Your progress. Again, in verse 2, it says, will they finish in a day? He's mocking the speed and the progress with which the walls are being rebuilt. From this text, we, are, we really don't know how long this wall-building project might have been on the drawing board, maybe years before Nehemiah ever showed up. They had talked about it. They had thought about it. They had discussed it. We know the temple had been completed about 70 years earlier. 
There's every reason to believe that there were plans for rebuilding the walls. And now it was underway. It didn't look like much yet. At the end of our verses, they are only halfway. And then the attack comes. This is the same kind of mockery the adversary whispers to you and me. Talk all you want. But you've attempted this before. You've tried to change before. You've made an effort and you got serious for a day or two and then you went right back to the way that you were. It didn't work then and it's not going to happen now. And in the face of that, you and I have to turn to God's word where it tells us that his ultimate objective and his purpose in rescuing you and saving you is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ and what God starts, God finishes. It's not wholly dependent on me. And bless God for that. But he will mark you and the progress that may seem terribly slow to you. The fifth thing they attack are your resources. Your resources. Again, in verse 2, he says, Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? When Nehemiah arrived, the only material he brought for the rebuilding program was timber. You can go back and check that. That's all he brought. So where'd they get the stones? Where did they get the building materials? Where did all the material come for, from for the walls? And I think the answer is a blessing. Because the walls were completed by reclaiming, retooling, restoring, and recovering the very stones that comprise the mess in their life. How many people have you known whose greatest failure became their greatest point of testimony to the grace of God, his capacity to change a human heart? And how many people have you known where God took that, not our successes and our greatest accomplishments, but he took the rubble and used it to build a life and a ministry. God is able to so completely redeem and restore that he can glorify himself in the midst of and out of the rubble of our broken past. The sixth thing, and the final thing that's recorded here that was attacked involves our accomplishments. Our accomplishments. In verse 3, the Ammonite speaks up, Sanballat is finished, but he chimes in. And he says, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. I think at this point the devil gets childish to cause you to think that your progress is little and not much. He's saying, look at that. Look at, look at you. Man, there's the first test that comes into your life, you're going to crumble. You don't have any strength. You don't have any substance. You're fake. I mean, he, he comes at you. He, anything that's a success, he's going to cause you to look at it and say, well, I guess it wasn't much. And we need to celebrate our victories. You understand? We need to celebrate our victories. If you go one day without falling into that compelling, repetitive, besetting, sinful habit, 
I think you ought to have a party that night and call your friends and neighbors over and said, I had victory today. God spared me. God worked in me. And I didn't do what I used to do. God is at work in you. You can't see all that God is doing. But you can know with certainty that he is forming Christ in you. And I can't see that in you, and you may not see that in me. But that is the truth of every person here that knows Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what's he talking about? We talk about, we talk about doctrines like redemption, that through the cross and the shedding of his blood, we have been set free by the payment of that price. We talk about justification, that without cost to me and freely, but at great cost to himself, he purged my life, he cleansed me of my sins by taking my sins on himself, and he was punished in my place, and because of that, he has wiped my record clean. We talk about justification. We talk about sanctification. The process by which over time we are changing and we are growing. And it's a process that you and I cooperate with. But it's a process that where God is at work. But you know the good news is that at the end of the process, when you and I come to that final day, all of us that know Christ, we will come to the same place at the same time and you will explode with the glory and the likeness of Jesus Christ and you will shine brighter than any sun. It doesn't compare, he says, to the glory that will be revealed in us. So he can ridicule your accomplishments, but it's not stopping what God is doing. And what God starts, God finishes. I wonder tonight if you were to be honest and you and I could sit across from one another for a few moments. I wonder if I asked you, are you conscious, are you aware of Jesus Christ living inside you? You know, we're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to look inside ourselves. In fact, I can do this. Boy, I hate doing this. But let me find the verse that's coming to mind. Oh, this is not going well. I'll give it to you next week. Paul, at the end of one of the Corinthian books, says that we're to examine ourselves to know whether Christ lives in us. He says, don't you know that he lives in you? And so does Christ live in you? He wouldn't ask that question unless it was possible for you to become conscious that Jesus Christ lives inside. You know, that's the most, the clearest defining Evidence of our salvation. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And our awareness of his presence certainly is cultivated. Certainly 
we become more alert to his prompting and his guidance and his activity. Certainly, we learn to walk and keep in step with the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in us. But we can be conscious of it. Without the spirit of Jesus living inside us, there's no rebuilding going on. It's not happening. Oh, you may attend church. You may be very active in church. But without the Spirit of Christ, you're not His. You don't belong to Him. And at your very best, you're a good moral person. But you're not born again. And so tonight, I would ask, that if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that tonight you seize the opportunity to say, I want to follow him, and I want to put my trust in him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just before we close, we're going to have a time of response, and it's an opportunity for you to put your faith in Christ. It's also an opportunity for brothers and sisters who are already Christ followers to respond in worship and praise or prayer to what God has said to us. But if you're not a Christian tonight, Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus does not live inside you. You need to know that Jesus told a man one night that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth is a necessity. And it's through the new birth that the human spirit, which is dead and cut off from God, experiences life. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's speaking to you right now about your relationship with Jesus. That tug or that dis-ease or that convincing feeling that you have at this moment is typically a work of the Holy Spirit. His job is to convict us of the truth. And so is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ, not by anything that we have done, but only by what he has done. And his death on the cross secures forgiveness for all your sin. And his perfect life secures Every ounce of right living, every ounce of righteousness, every good work that you ever need to please God, Jesus has already done it. And tonight, if you will call on God and put your trust into Jesus Christ and give him your life, he will come inside, he will forgive your sins, and he will save you. When we stand and sing, I want to encourage you to slip out of the pew, come talk to one of these pastors that will be standing down front. They'll share scripture with you. They'll pray with you. And they'll guide you through the process. But it's simply putting faith into Christ and what he did for you. Our Father and our God, as we respond to your word and what you're doing right now in the hearts of, of your people, we want to say, Holy Spirit, that you're welcome in this place. And we're thankful that those of us that know Jesus, that, Lord, you have lifted us out of the domain of darkness 
and you have placed us into the kingdom of your Son. And although we live on earth physically, we know that there's a new spiritual life on the inside. And tonight we pray for that individual who wants that life and who is ready to trust Christ. Give them boldness and confidence to come and place their trust into Jesus. And Father, for that brother or that sister who is struggling with questions, struggling with doubts, that brother or sister that is waking up to the rebuilding program that you have in their own soul, may your spirit speak to them and guide them in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?